As Reformed Baptists, we understand the concept of covenant theology to mean, number one, that we can say that ultimately there's an overriding purpose of God and uh, there's an unfolding drama of redemption of how he's going to bring his people to himself. And number two, we see, and we've seen already, it's revealed for the first time in Genesis 3.15. We talk about that a lot. It's a foundational verse. It's an important verse. Third of all, we see that uh, this covenant, the covenant, especially the covenant that we're talking about, uh, making our way towards the new covenant, is progressively revealed more and more as history unfolds. And then fourth of all, we see the way of salvation by grace through faith is the only way that men can come to God since the fall of Adam. So this is true in the Old Testament too. We're going to be talking about covenants. And we'll be talking about the Mosaic Covenant. You cannot be saved by the Mosaic Covenant. And the Abrahamic Covenant contains promises. And we really see great glimpses of the New Covenant in the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. But the covenant itself, um, well, we'll be talking about that today. So let me not say too much yet. And then the promised covenant of grace, or the new covenant, is finally instituted and revealed by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the establishment of His church made up of every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see the promise of His coming, the promise of His coming, the promise of His coming, and then He comes. And we're all looking, they were all looking ahead to something that was promised, and certainly was sure to come to pass, you know. But then, in the old, now in the New Covenant, we look back at the finished work of Christ, what He's done, and what He is doing for us. So today, what I hope to do is uh, to take us to Genesis 12 again. So let's go there. Let's go to Genesis 12 first and see the promises that are there. And let me say this about covenant theology too. Uh, their covenant theology, we hold to it uh, as opposed to dispensationalism. Um, our our pedo-baptist brethren, those that baptize babies, use covenant theology to try to prove infant baptism. Uh, I don't believe that is valid, but I agree with, with so much of what many of them say. And so there's different strands of covenant theology. And that's important to realize. You know, there, there's not just one covenant theology, one size fits all. There's different strands of it. Even amongst Reformed Baptists, uh, there are different strands of, of covenant theology. At least there's two primary strands. And um, to be honest with you, I kind of straddle the middle there, not because I'm a compromiser, but because I see value in both. So, so that's the way I am. Some have, um, so, but, um, so anyway. There are different strands is what I'm trying to say. So some things may surprise you, some things you may not agree with, and that's fine. In covenant theology, we have what we call in-house debates, things that uh, we look at and see just a little bit differently. And we're not going to go so deep into it in this study that you'll probably see too much of that, but we might see some, especially some of you that are really well-versed in covenant theology. So there you go. Okay. Genesis chapter 12. What I hope to do today is show the promises of Genesis 12, because I don't really think this is a covenant in the truest sense of the word. We see the Abrahamic covenant coming in chapter 15 and in chapter 17. And this is the promise of a covenant. 
And it certainly is the promise uh, that uh, really reveals to us what the Lord is going to do through Abraham. But we'll see the cutting of the covenant in chapter 15. And then we'll see the covenant of circumcision, as it's called in Acts 7-8, in chapter 17, which will be the seal of the covenant of Abraham. So, this is where we're going with this. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you can see the promise that's given to Abram. But it doesn't follow the the natural course of covenant. But we can't divorce it from the Abrahamic covenant. It's the very beginnings of it, and then it's formalized in 15 and 17. And so this is the calling of Abram, and the initial promises given to him. Leave where you are, go to where I'll show you. And the promises given is to be a father of a great nation. He's promised to be blessed. He's promised to be given a great name. And it's not yet revealed how this is going to happen, but he had to believe it by faith. And um, he really needed a lot of faith to believe it uh, because there was a major problem. Who knows what the major problem was as God comes to Abram and says this to him? What's the big stumbling block that would really cause him to have to believe by faith that he was going to be the father of a great nation, his name would be made great, uh, all those things like that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sarai was barren. So um, he doesn't even have a son. Doesn't he have anyone to, to carry on the name? So how is all this going to take place? Well, he has to believe God. He has to believe him by faith. And he does, you know. And the greatest promise that we see here is in verse number three. Uh, we often hear about, I'll bless you, those who bless you, and curse them who curses you. And this is very, very true. Uh, but, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this ties us right back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And here it is again. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that transcends the nation of Israel and goes to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we're, we have New Testament proof of that. But we ought to understand that anyway from covenant theology. So all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Uh, It's not just a nation we're talking about. It is a nation we're talking about. Don't don't, uh, misunderstand that. Israel is definitely in view. We're going to see as we go through these covenants that um, there's a physical reality and a spiritual reality that exists with them. And the spiritual is always greater. So... He steps out on faith, leaving what he knows behind, and heads to the land of Canaan. And um, that will become the physical promised land. And interestingly enough, he would dwell in the promised land, but uh, he'd dwell in tents. Yeah. He, he wouldn't really own any of it until finally his wife dies. 
and he buys a small portion of a funeral plot, a burial plot. And that's what he owns. That's what, it, that's what he owns, and that's what he passes down, you know. But of course, um, the land of Canaan would be his as promised. But he lives in it like a sojourner. And why? Because he looked for a better country by faith. And that's what Hebrews tells us. He looked for a country or a city whose foundation was built by God. And so this is where Abraham is. And this is what's important. He never owned Canaan land. Israel didn't either until after the time of Joshua. They, they began to conquer it during the time of Joshua. So Abraham lived on a promise. He had faith. But we all know as weak human beings, faith can waver. Even Abraham's faith can waver. And so God comes to him again and makes a covenant with Abraham. Now you notice we're skipping some things here. But uh, Pastor Ken is preaching through Genesis or teaching through Genesis on, on Wednesday nights, taking a, a deep dive there. So um, I would ask you to come on Wednesday nights if you possibly can so, so you can get the full picture. We're talking about covenants. We're, we're zeroing in on that instead of trying to deal with the entire text. So now we can go to chapter 15. Now we're going to make an allusion to chapter 14 because there's something in chapter 14 that becomes very important leading into chapter 15. But chapter 15 is the next place that we see uh, the promise renewed. Verses 1 through 6, the promises to Abraham are renewed by God. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, and we're going to talk about what these things are in just a moment because that's a tie-in there. But after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, or maybe better even translated, your reward shall be very great. I am your shield, your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, there's a servant in his house. Uh, and you'd say, well, why wouldn't everything, you know, go to, you know, well, this is the way it was done in those days. And um, if he dies and is childless, this servant is going to inherit everything that he has. Uh, now, that's going to be a major problem, isn't it? Because of the promises of God, because of the, in in you all the families of the earth to be blessed, um, it hadn't been hadn't been promised that all the families of the earth would be blessed in Eliezer of Damascus, the servant, and so the promises of God and the very covenant of redemption, and, and the new covenant would be in, in grave danger. But is it really in grave danger? Of course not. Of course not. God never fails. So, well, humanly speaking, you could understand some, some fear and some wavering in Abram. And I don't know how long it was uh, between chapter 12 and chapter 15. I didn't look it up, so it's not fresh on my mind. But uh, there's some time that's elapsed. Okay, some time has elapsed. And more time is going to elapse before we actually see the promise uh, come in the form of Isaac. Okay. 
So uh, the Lord said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now, why would God say don't be afraid? Okay, well, usually when God tells us not to be afraid, or anyone in the Bible, there's something to be afraid of. Okay, there's a reason to be afraid. And, of course, one of the reasons could well be uh, that, um, you know, he hadn't had a son yet. He'd been promised a son, he hadn't had a son. And that is definitely weighing on his mind. He's going to, to actually talk with God about that. But there's another reason, too, why God would say, I am your shield. Okay. Because in chapter 14, we see the great war that takes place. We see the fact that uh, uh, Abram goes out with his men and uh, does great battle. Uh, let me see if there's some verses I can read that just uh, make it really, really easy for us here. Yeah, uh, look at uh, chapter 14, verse 21. Chapter 14, verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said uh, to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the most high God the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I'll not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. And uh, so, that's, and that's only fair, you know. Uh, these guys deserve something, and, uh, but I'm not going to let you say that you enriched me. Yes, Brendan, go ahead. Well, back to why would God say don't be afraid? Would that be a way of God telling Abraham to trust? Oh yeah, definitely. It's a way to to trust. But there, I'm trying, trying. The point I'm trying to make is there were a couple of reasons he could be afraid. One of the reasons I'm your shield. Another, I'm going to protect you. Abraham could have been very afraid that uh, the people of the land that had just been defeated as he got Lot back and all the possessions could have been afraid that they're going to retaliate. And what's he going to do when they retaliate? They could muster quite a large force, you know. Yeah, I was just thinking that in our nature, even as believers, we're prone, I mean, just like the father faith Abraham to lack trust, be fearful, and so forth. And so we constantly need to be uh, you know, helped with our faith. Yeah, yeah, we, we obviously, the same thing happens to us too. Fear not, you know, and uh, we need that same encouragement because we are fearful. I mean, who is, who's never been afraid that's here, you know? Who's just so brave as a lion and, and, and strong and, and you're never afraid? You don't worry about the future. Who cares about the future? Future will take care of itself. You know, God, you know, Oh, that, and that's true. God is going to take care of every one of his people's future. He is. But there's times it looks pretty rough. There's times it looks really, really scary. And what do you do? At what time you're afraid, what are you to do? It's 10, 20 a.m. <laughs> yeah. All right. Answers came around. <laughs> But time I'm afraid I'll trust in thee. <laughs> There's the biblical answer then. So, you know, this is what we have to do. And this is what God's called us to do. And so, yeah, we're fearful. We're, we're fearful because we can't control the future. 
we're fearful because there's many things that uh, are out of our hand, so to speak, you know. But nothing's ever out of God's hand. And so things happen, and they look bad, and they look like God's purposes are not going to come true. And we have to cling by faith to what He really has promised. Now, I made a statement that uh, a few people pushed back against, and I understand why they did. Probably I said it wrong, for one thing. But uh, we, we can claim the promises of God and, and rest in those things. But if God hasn't promised it, and we just believe it's going to happen, well, okay, uh, that can be shifting sand. Okay, I'll just put it that way. And so, you know, we can definitely trust in the promises of God, and we must and that's what we rely on. And even when they don't look like they're going to come true. Okay. So God says, I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you. And that's why I think it's better to say, uh, and your reward will be very great, is because you just turned down a big reward. Because he says, I'm not going to let you say that, uh, you know, you made me rich. God is the one that's promised to make my name great. God's the one who promised I'd do these things, and God said, that's exactly right. I promised you that, and that's what I'm going to do. You know? So, you exceed, and, and, the other, and, and in the Hebrew, it can go the other way, too. I am your exceedingly great reward, because God is his great reward. But I think probably the one way is maybe a little better. Verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, okay, here we go. Now he's going to cry out, you know. Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now this was a, a deeply troubling thing. And, and you know the story, so I'm not even going to turn to it. But this becomes the very uh, cry that he has, even though this great promise is about ready to be given, this great cry this great aching that he has uh, is going to be the impetus of Ishmael being born through Hagar. Okay, this, that's what's going to happen. He's going to have another moment of weakness. Sarai is going to have a moment of weakness, one that she'll come to regret. And of course, Abraham doesn't really ever, that I can see, regret having Ishmael. He loved his son. He loved his son. And uh, we'll see that. And his son has promises that come to him, too. Even though those promises were physical only and nothing to do with eternal life. Okay. So, but of course, by faith, if Ishmael has faith, you know, then he, too, can be one of God's own. But we have no reason to, to think that that's the case, or at least that I can think of. We have no reason. So he has no heir. A great nation, but no heir. A great name, but no heir. His wife is barren, so it's impossible in human terms for God's promises to be fulfilled. But Abraham found a way, but it wasn't God's way. Okay. And then the promise, verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And uh, we'll find Abraham later on saying, may, may Ishmael live before you. And God had a better plan. Then he brought him outside and said, 
Now, this is really important. These next two verses are really foundational. Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. You don't have a son. You don't have an heir. You don't, you don't have a daughter, but uh, heirs were through the sons. You know, and you're going to look to the stars. And um, if, if you live in Southern California, unless you get way out to the desert, and I'm talking about way out to the desert, you can't even begin to see as many stars as Abraham was able to see. You know, and um, of course, now we see even more than what we could ever see with the naked eye. There's the latest orbiting telescope. And uh, we're told that we can now see far more than anyone has ever seen by picture. And scientists have learned some that uh, even, uh, I've been told that some of those faraway stars are actually galaxies. And uh, that's what the crisp pictures show. And it's interesting to listen to scientists um, talking about the stars of the heaven. Astronomers in this instance say, well, and I was listening to a guy on television say this. I thought, this is really cool. You know, He says, we're seeing things that we simply don't understand. There's things going on that we've never seen before, and we don't know how to explain it. And it's causing us to question everything that we have believed. I thought, well, good. That's a good thing. That's what science is supposed to do. Science is not supposed to lock into an idea and then keep it at all costs? No. So here we go. We've got something that we don't know. There's stuff out there that we don't know even what it is. And that's honest science. Asking questions. Realizing that you are wrong. Trying to get a better grasp on how all these things that God created came together. See, that's not true in the area of theology. We, we know what happened. And we know who did it. And we know how he did it with a word. But if you want to try to explain it in scientific terms, oh, well, that's going to be very, very difficult. And if you go at it with the presupposition that it all came from a big bang 13, 14, 15, now they've taken it to 16 billion years ago. Okay, and if you're going to try to prove that this 16 billion years ago is the way that it came about, well, you're going to have to come up with theories. You're going to have to come up with all kinds of ideas. You have to say sorts of things. But um, so they're going to be reworking all the things that our generation and the generation before me has been taught. My generation was taught one thing. Uh, the generations that came later have been taught something else. So evidently the next generations are going to be taught something else too about origins. And they're still not going to get it right. <laughs> they're still not going to get it right. They're going to try to figure it out. So this is what the Bible calls science falsely so-called, arrogantly thinking that they can find all of the answers and that they have disproved God and his word. But the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So we as Christians should have no problem with men trying to figure and discover the great secrets of the universe. But how much better if we would go with the presupposition and acknowledge that God made these things and seek to discover the natural laws of how they work 
and um, glorify the Lord that holds them all together. These are great mysteries that will never be solved unless we believe God. You know, so men can look and men can search. They've been doing it for centuries and centuries trying to figure it out. And they did figure out a lot of things. They figured out that the earth revolves around the sun. But even though that was figured out, it was already known. <laughs> they, they, they knew that way back when. So these are the things that we're talking about. You know, we, we try to figure it out and uh, let the scientists work and uh, don't try to stop them from working. But there's a better way to go about it. So the question is, can you number the stars? And, and obviously it's a figure of speech. Okay. We, there, we can't number the stars now. We, we have no way to number them. There's more than we thought there were. <laughs> okay. we, just can't, we can't number them. We don't know. It's a figure of speech. And Hebrews eleven twelve says, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Another figure of speech. Think of all the seashores in the world. Think of all the sand that is there. And each tiny grain. You know. Okay. So this is just a way of trying to help our feeble human minds get an idea of the immensity of what God is promising. And this is an immense thing. So shall your descendants be. Now... Israel is an amazing nation. They were an amazing nation. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what to think of the Israel that exists today. But it doesn't show a lot to me uh, of what ancient Israel was. Okay, just being blunt. And to think that they are God's chosen people, even though they're lost in sin, well, you know, they were God's chosen people in the Old Testament days and they had a job to do and they did their job. They brought in Messiah. That was their main purpose, their main job. They did their job and then ironically, most have rejected the Messiah that they were used to bring in to this very day. They still do. It's not that no no Jews can be saved. Of course they can be saved. And, and the early church was primarily composed of Jews for the first uh, couple of decades. And uh, even, and it's a little beyond what we're saying, but we've said it before. You know, they argued about whether Gentiles even could be saved. You know, unless you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. That becomes the great Judaizer controversy in Acts chapter 15. And of course, that was disproved. No, Gentiles are saved like we are saved by grace through faith. Okay, so there you go. And that's how it was solved. Well, um, Israel itself could not fulfill uh, what is being said here about the stars of heaven and uh, about the sands of the sea in Hebrews 11. Could not do that. Israel's never been that big of a nation in fact, there was probably only about a 40-year period of time where Israel became a real dominant force in the world. 
because that was the end of, of David's, maybe the final 20 years of David's reign, and then the first 20 years of Solomon's reign. Uh, they were a world power. They were well known. They, they were, had, um, you know, this is just the way that it was. But it was very short-lived. I mean, after the death of Solomon, the nation was divided. And, and divided doesn't stand well. And this was really a weakness for them to be divided like that. And uh, they'd been weak going into it, having trouble even battling the Philistines, for instance. Okay. Well, Philistines are powerful. Philistines are great. But when you're struggling to battle with the Philistines, you, you hardly can compare with uh, what would later be the Roman Empire. You know, it just isn't, it isn't comparable, you know. So this is not really the, this is a spiritual fulfillment. And uh, we can go to many verses that say that, and we will before this series is done. But let me just give you one. Abraham's true children, found in, in Revelation 7, verse 9. Listen to what it says. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand. And so how many people are there going to be in heaven? It's going to be like the sand of the sea? It's going to be like stars in heaven? It's going to be innumerable, you know. And uh, that doesn't mean you, you count them. It's, you understand, right? It's figurative. So right now, there's enough for, for this to be fulfilled, I believe. There's enough from Old Testament, New Testament, all combined together. There's enough to fulfill this, you know, larger than any one nation has ever been by multiple ways. But, talking about true believers, but how large will it actually become? And that's what we don't know. And, um, and that will continue, that the number will continue growing. God knows the number. They're written in the Lamb's Book of Life already and so the number is fixed by election we know this is true but we don't know when the last elect person will come we don't know that that's a mystery to us and if it's next year then praise the lord if it's 10 years from now then praise the lord if it's 20 years from now well that probably won't help me a whole lot but who knows <laughs> you know and if it's uh, uh, 10,000 years from now which i don't expect but if you want me to speculate, you want me to speculate? Yeah. yeah, okay. I heard one person say yes, and everybody else says, no, don't, don't try to do that. Okay, I'll try to speculate. If the Old Testament period for, or for casting the new covenant took place, as we see, and all that period of time, would we be shocked if we find out at the end of time, even though we should be looking for the Lord's return, we should be looking for it, we should, we should do that, but would we be shocked if at the end of time it turns out this new covenant age lasts longer than the Old Testament age? Would we be shocked? Oh, you're disappointed. <laughs> well, <laughs> look, if 20 years is, is what I'm giving myself, I will, I'm sorry, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Okay. So, we know. 
I'm not saying that's true. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying when the end of time comes and we're all standing there with the innumerable number, if it would end up being a longer period of time than the old covenant time, okay, we shouldn't say, oh, that's that, not even possible. That couldn't, hap- that couldn't happen. Of course it could happen. You know, every generation is to be looking for the return of the Lord. But he's going to come at the time that's appointed. Okay. So, uh, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6, of course, is the key verse. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And that becomes a key verse in the New Testament. A key verse there. Abraham, great man of faith, father of the faithful. You know, but there's something that hasn't happened to Abraham yet. I'm going to test your chronology knowledge now. Something very important to the Jewish people that Abraham doesn't have a part of yet. Anybody know what it is? Ah, I heard it. Circumcision. He is still uncircumcised. Interestingly enough. And will not be circumcised until chapter 17 when God completes the Abrahamic covenant by giving him the covenant of circumcision. And I don't think we're going to get there today. Um, We might touch very briefly. Let's see. Um, So the rest of chapter 15 talks about the cutting of the covenant. You know, and I'm not going to read that again. Wednesday nights will be where you'd want to come to get the details of that uh, in that excellent series. And um, really, you know, there is some I want to point out. Look at verse 12, because there is an amazing prophecy that comes in the midst of this cutting of the covenant. Um, Abraham does what he does, and uh, the covenant, there is the literal cutting of the covenant. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So in the midst of all this wonder and, and, and blessing, now there's horror. And then God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them and afflict them for 400 years. And uh, we need to understand when the Bible's talking about numbers like that. Sometimes it's round, rounded numbers. Okay, There's other places in the Bible that says 430 years. It's not a contradiction. It's what God is telling him. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And, and you know what God is talking about. Uh, he's talking about how the nation of Israel will be like in the womb of Egypt and then being born in great pain. You know, that, that's what he's talking about. And uh, 400 years is an awful long time. You think about that, how long that actually is. And uh, our ways are not God's ways. So let me just make an observation here. Um, why a wasted 400 years and then another wasted wandered, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years beyond that? And what we have to say is that God has all the time in the world. 
We care very much about the times that we live in. And we should. Because God's ordained the times that we live in. We're here on purpose for this time. It wasn't an accident that you were born. It wasn't an accident where you are. These are God's purposes. Okay, So this is what God has done. And so we should care. But it's very arrogant to think, well, we are the people. It's all come down to us. You know, This is the greatest moment, and this is the greatest time, because we're here. You know? <laughs> okay. Well, that's not going to matter too much to people you know, 200 years from now. They're not going to much care about that if there is a 200 years from now. Okay. So we can arrogantly think that way, and men have thought that way down through the ages. You know, but, um, you know, uh, God has all the time in the world, and he ordained when Christ would come, Genesis 4-4, in the fullness of time. Okay, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. And uh, so we know that God has all the time in the world, and he institutes the covenant of grace, the new covenant, where we live now. And until then, you know, there would be Salvation by faith alone, by looking ahead to God's promises, uh, believing in God, faith in God's promises, accounted as righteousness. And uh, so that, that's where we, we stand in Genesis 15. I don't believe that uh, the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. And most of my pedo-baptist friends will disagree with that. But I would say this. The Abrahamic covenant is full of promises of the covenant of grace and then has many physical aspects to it uh, that are part of um, what we would call um, positive law. And positive law is not moral law. Moral law is always true. Positive law is something that God gives and it can be changed. Okay, it comes in for a purpose, comes in for a time, and it can go out with a purpose and go out also. So, my belief is the Abrahamic covenant that we're going to see in 15, uh, we, really if you read the rest of 15, you'll, you'll see the promises that are made that are by and large physical promises. Uh, look at uh, verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. This is the, the covenant being made by God. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And, and so we have those land promises that do exist. Now they're fulfilled in a greater way you know, but um, did you know, and most of you do, that uh, the Bible says two times that uh, God fulfilled the land promises to Israel. Twice in the Bible. I could find them, but I won't do it right now. Because I didn't have, don't have it in my notes, and I'm not that good at, at just remembering passages. So, two times, though, we're told that God fulfilled all of his promises. In, in the book of Joshua, it says that. Okay, so the full expression of the covenant of grace is brought in by the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, the faith of Abraham and the promises of God points to the new covenant and to Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior of sinners, of course. Abraham had a promise, then Abraham had a covenant, and God's purposes always come to pass.
And um, that's how God's chosen to deal with men, by covenant. And he makes up the terms of the covenant. And he condescends to deal with us by covenant. But God does not give up his deity so he could deal with us by covenant. God does not cease to be God. God does not bind himself by our free will. And, and you know most Christians believe that, don't you? Most Christians, true Christians, real believers, believe that somehow we can limit or bind God by our free will and override his sovereignty. Well, I don't see that happening, and it's not going to happen. God does not bind himself by our free will, and God does not simply react to our actions. So God's covenant of grace is with his elect, not with mankind as a whole. And election is absolutely clear. This, I think this is where I'll end. Um, election is absolutely clear and undeniable in the Old Testament. Abraham is chosen. Isaac is chosen. Jacob is chosen. The descendants after him is chosen. Israel is the favored nation. Uh, we've got a moment. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Israel is the favored nation, but they weren't the only nation given land by God. Not the only nation. And just to two places, we, we can see that that be the case. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 5, the words of Moses. Deuteronomy 2, 5, talking to the people as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Uh, verse 5, um, verse 4, and command the people saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir, and they'll be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Doesn't mean they'll keep it, but he gave it to them. Okay, but they didn't keep it. Uh, they, they lost it eventually. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given heir to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Of course, the Bible tells us that uh, God does um, you know, do that with nations and land and order, things like that. We can see it in prophecy. We can see it taking place um, in, in the book of Daniel when we're being told basically what's going to happen. Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, all these sorts of things, and, and God's behind it all, and God's working his will through it all. So it's not surprising to us. But I just thought that might be interesting for you to see there. They have a promised land that's going to be given to them, but there's other countries, even though they aren't the favored nation and don't necessarily have the promises that Israel has that had some promises of physical of physical nature there. Okay, so no use. Well, we're done. We can't go any further. Uh, we're out of time. So next time we'll go to Genesis 17 and uh, we'll see the covenant of circumcision and how that ties this all together. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We pray your blessing now upon us as we get ready for the worship service. May Jesus Christ receive for himself all the glory. We thank you, Father, for the blessings of, of motherhood, too. We all honor mothers today, Father, but we all know that it's the Lord's Day. And so we honor you most of all, as we must do every single Lord's Day and 24-7 
all the days of our life. So we thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.